David provides a master class of how to process fear when you're going through a crisis. The heading of the psalm in your paper Bible will tell you that this is the psalm David wrote while he was on the run from Absalom, his son, after Absalom staged a coup and tried to take over the kingdom. When Absalom took the power and took the military, he put a death warrant out on his own father, David. And it's bad when your own boy's trying to kill you. <laughs> so David is in crisis, and he describes his fear and then answers himself out of his own heart based off of the stored knowledge that he has about God. And when you are in a crisis and there's nobody around to answer you, you do have to learn how to answer yourself based off of the stored knowledge that you have about God. Crisis is not a good time to seek new information. In crisis, you want to pull on the information you've stored in your heart about the Lord. So what is it? Whoever I'm here to talk to, it may just be two or three of you. What is it that you're afraid of today? What's been causing you so much anxiety and so much pain? What is it? Well, whatever it is, you probably don't have 10,000 people looking for you trying to kill you. Like David did. In verses 1 and 2, David identifies the two levels of fear that he's dealing with. And really, there is only two levels of fear. The first level of fear is visceral fear. Visceral fear. That's the fear of an immediate threat of bodily harm, that your body is in danger. You know, you're walking through a field and you hear the rattle of a rattlesnake. It elicits that visceral fear response, that fight or flight tendency. The second level of fear is psychological fear. Now, visceral fear, again, that immediate response to physical danger, that's active in the text because Absalom, David's son, is literally trying to kill him, to cause him bodily harm to the point that he's dead. And so he says in verse 1, Lord, how have they increased who trouble me, and many are they who rise up against me. The original Hebrew says, who rise up with the intention and the plan to assassinate me. But then that second level of fear is active in the text as well, and it's different, but just as deadly. Psychological fear is the eroding of your self-confidence and your inward identity. David describes this fear in verse 2 when he says, Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Let me explain that scripture. A lot of times people have said that those that were saying that about David, that there's no help for him in God. A lot of people have explained that, that these that said that didn't have confidence in God's ability to help David. And that's not what it's saying. What they're saying is not that God couldn't help David. They're saying that David was such a mess that God wouldn't no longer help David. And when you consider that verse, <clears throat> God's not going to help him anymore. He can't even go to God for help. God don't want to hear from him. When you consider that verse in the context of David's life, it's riveting. They're saying, look, 
God has departed from David just like he departed from Saul. God's not with him anymore. So that second level of fear is much deeper than just attacking his physical body. They're attacking his identity, his calling, his character, and his future. The number one fear in America today that people are concerned about is how things are going to turn out in the future. Whatever you're worried about today, whatever you walked in here and you had such a thing on you that God made me preach this, it probably involves something coming in the future. So they're saying, yes, God was with David in the past, but now because of the bad decisions and mistakes David has made going forward, God's not with him anymore. He can't get help from God. And what makes this second level of fear so dangerous for David in particular is there was evidence that they might be right. It's easy to shake off what somebody says about you when it's not true. But what do you do when not all of what your haters are saying is a lie? Absalom was telling everybody, hey, remember how God was at one time with Saul? How God anointed Saul, how God raised Saul up, and how God was strong in Saul's life. But then Saul made mistakes. Saul committed sin, and God ripped the kingdom from him. Absalom was saying, in the same way God has ripped the kingdom from David, he's not with him anymore. David is done. There's no help for him in God. Look at his sin. And David has some sin on him. He committed adultery. Then he had the woman's husband murdered so that he could make it seem like that the baby was his. And then he lied to the whole kingdom about it. He put the whole kingdom in jeopardy. He put the army in jeopardy. Uh, Bathsheba's husband was a beloved general in the army. And so killing him risked turning the entire army against David. Absalom said, look at what he's done. How could God stay with him? He has no right to be our king. He has no right to lead us. And so that first level of fear, it's attacking your physical body. But that second level threatens your soul. And now David's body's in danger and his soul is in danger. And it's that second level where depression and deep anxiety set in because you realize that, that some of the evidence against you is true. There, there's a... There's a period of your life where you can walk through just messing up, doing crazy things, living wild, living like there's no consequences. And it's like you're oblivious to it. But you do get to an age where all of the weight of your mistakes and your failures start to settle down on you. And you begin to realize how wrong you have been and how, how many wrong turns you took in your life. And when you look at your outside circumstances and they're all negative, it's easy to buy into the idea that I'm going through so much pain right now because I've messed up too bad. I've made one too many mistakes 
mistakes. I had one too many failures and my, my heart is destined to be broken. Maybe I deserve to be depressed. Maybe I deserve to be in isolation. Maybe I deserve for no one to love me because of the things I have done in the past. It's that second level of fear, that deep psychological fear that will drive people all the way down and crush your identity and your sense of self-worth. The first fear, the visceral fear, it makes you run. The second fear paralyzes you. And the second fear, in my opinion, is a little worse than the first because it attacks the identity and the self-worth. Now, David had been king so long that he started to identify himself that way. Because that's what we do a lot of times. We identify ourselves based around what we do. But now that he's no longer king, his identity is threatened. And this can bring depression on people when they start losing the things that they built their identities around. Now, I feel like I'm talking to somebody right there. Because there's some people in this room who have recently lost some of the things that you've built your identity around. Uh, a lot of professional athletes are addicted to prescription medication, not because of the pain in their body, but because of the pain of losing their identity. Because for most of their lives, they grew up building their identity around performing the sport that they loved. But when you remove them from the thing they built their identity around, they go into crisis. Because who am I in the absence of the thing that I built my self-worth and my value around? You know, all these years I've been the quarterback. Now that I'm not the quarterback, who in the world am I? Or for some people, you were married for 25 years. You've been the husband. You've, you've been a person in the relationship. You were expected to do certain things. And then the marriage falls apart and you go into crisis because who am I without that anchor of identity that I built myself around? Or when people who pride themselves on being parents and raising kids and for 18 years, you've kept the house running and 18 years, you've kept the schedule and 18 years, you've been looking out for everybody and all you. You build your identity around out, and then all of a sudden, the little suckers go off to college. You know, and now there's a crisis because the thing you built so much of your identity around has been removed. And so this is the crisis for David. And it's more than just his physical life is being threatened. His identity and his self-worth has now been threatened. And David is in despair. Despair is when you have so much weight on you and there's no way to release it and you don't know what to do. David is in despair. However, he believes if I can just get God to hear me, I'm going to say it again. He believes in his despair. He believes in his depression. See, you don't have to get out of it to believe for it. He believes, oh, that's powerful, in his despair, in his anxiety, in his threatened state. He believes if I can just get God's ear, if I can just get 
God to hear me, then I believe I can come out of this. Verse 1, how are they increased who trouble me? Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him, not even in God. However, the breakthrough starts in verse 3 with a but. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me. No matter how difficult your situation is, faith in God will always give you a but. David said, yeah, I'm scared, but yes, it's bad, but yes, I've messed up, but yes, it's all my fault, but yes, I lost the crown, but yes, I lost my family, but yes, I lost my status, but yes, I'm running for my life, but and I want to tell somebody in here, you've been fearful and you've been complaining about the problem and the threats against you. The thing you have forgotten is you've forgotten your but. Faith in God will always give you a but. And I want to tell you to get your butt back. You ain't been talking enough about the but God gave you. You ain't been thinking enough about the but. God gave you. Your threatening situation has enclosed within it a butt given to you by God. Push somebody say, get your butt back. David realizes he's in a situation where he has to get God to hear him. And in the text, he shows us how. Point number one, review the promises of Scripture. Oh, Jesus. Review. It's going to get foolish here in a minute. Review the promises of Scripture. When he says, many are they that rise up against me, and many are they that say of my soul, there ain't no help for him in God. He says, but thou, O Lord, are a shield for me. Now, now he's not pulling that shield out of his behind. He's not just talking about that shield. What he is doing as a middle-aged man is going all the way back to his childhood and reviewing the promises of God. You must understand that for every Jewish boy, in order to go through bar mitzvah, they had to memorize and quote the original promises of the covenant God gave Abraham. And the first article of that covenant that God gave Abraham is in Genesis 15, verse 1. And it says, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. David is in the greatest warfare of his life and he goes all the way back to the first stored thing that he stored in his heart and his mind about God. God, you promised to be a shield and when you get in a fight, when you get up under attack, when you get in a threatening situation, it's time to open up the memory bank. It's time to open up the stored knowledge that you have about God and remind yourself out loud and remind God in prayer there's a covenant of promise over my life and the first thing you said you would be for me is a shield but thou O oh Lord are a, are a shield for me now a shield guarantees a few things a shield guarantees that you will be attacked 
A shield guarantees that you will go through some trouble. A shield guarantees there will be some enemies that try to hurt you. A shield guarantees that there will be nights of trouble. A shield guarantees that the arrows will fly. But a shield also guarantees that no weapon formed against you shall be able to prosper. That God knew you were going to get into some trouble. So before he started walking with you, he assigned a shield to your life. I want to tell somebody up under threat. I want to tell somebody up under attack. I want to tell somebody up under trouble. God's got you covered with a mighty shield. Push somebody, encourage them with me. Say there's a shield for you. There's a shield in your situation. There's a shield for that legal trouble. There's a shield for that sickness in your body. There's a shield for that problem at work. There's a a shield for that thing going on with your children. There is a shield given by God. There is a promise of a shield. you got to review the promises of God. He says, Thou, O Lord, are a shield. Preach with me. He said, Thou, O Lord, are a shield for me. You are my glory. And you are the lifter of my head. Point number two, relocate the glory. Glory here means weight or significance. Now the glory of a king was his crown. David has lost the crown and lost the status. And in everybody's eyes, lost the glory. He's not a good king. And if you, if you look at his life, he's not a good husband. If you look at his life, he's not a good father. If you look at his life, he's not even been a good man. He has nothing left to base his identity or self-worth on. So he turns to God and he says, God, I ain't got nothing left except my faith in you. So you are my glory. You are my significance. My value, watch, my value is based in your approval of me. Oh, catch this. And because you still approve of me, I still have value. Because you still approve of me, I still have a, a base to build my identity and my self-worth on. Can't build it on the crown anymore. Can't build it on being a daddy. Can't build it on being a good husband. Can't build it on even being a good man. But I can build on the fact that the God of heaven looks at me and approves of me. So God, you are my glory. And you are the reason that I have to lift up my head. Now a thoughtful person. A considerate person who ponders things should be asking, how could David glory in the approval of a God who he has disobeyed? How could David have so much confidence after such great failure? And the answer is point number three, remember the substitute. In verse 4, he alludes to it. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me. 
from his holy hill. Look at somebody say, the hills have ears. Holy hill that he's referring to was Mount Zion. It was the place where the tabernacle was erected. God had told Moses when the law was given, when the people sin, tell them to bring a lamb to the tabernacle. And I will take the innocence that's on the lamb and put it on the people. And I'll take the guilt that's on the people because of their sin and put it on the lamb. Then take that lamb to the priest, have the priest slit its throat and catch the blood in the bucket and pour it out on the altar on the top of the hill. And whenever I see the blood on the hill, no matter what the people have done, no matter what they're guilty of, no matter the mistakes they have made, when I see the blood hit the altar on the hill, I will forgive them of their sin. I won't hold their iniquity against them. I will not judge them as they deserve. I will pass judgment on the substitute. I'll pass judgment on the lamb. And David was in a mess, but in spite of his circumstance, he still had bold confidence in the blood sacrifice of the lamb coming off the altar on a hill. What did David think about the blood? How strong did he think that the blood of that lamb that he had offered for his sin was? He talks about it in Psalm 103, verses 8 through 13. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Why? Because he dealt with the substitute. He hasn't punished us according to our sin. Why? Because he punished the substitute, the lambs that were slain. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as high are, as the heavens are high above the earth, so great his mercy is toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. He had so much confidence in, in the blood sacrifice that happened on the holy hill. That he said in Psalm 3, verse 5 and 6, I lay down and slept. Now, you know you're mature when you can lay down and sleep when there's 10,000 people looking for you, trying to kill you. I laid down and slept, and I awoke for the Lord sustain me. I want to tell somebody who's been losing sleep, it's time to go to bed. The threat is a lie. That thing coming against you saying it's going to destroy you is a lie. Receive the word of the Lord. I said that thing is a lie. It ain't going to come to nothing. They say they got problems and with the numbers and the blood test. That thing ain't going to come to nothing. They said they're making changes at the job and your job may be on the line. That thing ain't going to come to nothing. It ain't going to do no good staying up all night wringing your hands. You need to go to bed and have confidence in God. I laid down and slept and I awoke for the Lord sustained me. Give the Lord a praise in the house.
This is how much confidence he had in what happened on the hill. I laid down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me, and I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who set themselves against me all around. Confidence in the blood that flowed off that hill was giving David peace. It was giving David the boldness to say, even though 10,000 assassins are looking for me right now, I will not be afraid. How? How did David know he'd be okay? How did he know that even after all of his failures and living out a mess of consequences that he deserved? How did he know that he could cry out to God with his voice for deliverance? He knew God would hear him from the hill where the blood was shed. He knew the hill had ears. Now, this Old Testament hill, Mount Zion, a powerful place of sacrifice where God forgave sins and removed shame and even released blessings. But in Psalm 121, at the end of his life, David looks through the prophetic telescope of time and he notices another holy hill in the future. A hill more powerful than Mount Zion, a hill called Calvary. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I Love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. And the greatest power that God ever poured out on the earth was poured out on a hill. If the hill of the Old Testament and the blood that flowed from it caused God to always hear the prayers of people that had faith in it, how much more will the hill of Calvary and the blood that was spilt on it cause God to hear and help those who can stand in the middle of a trial and say, I still believe in the power of the blood. Jesus, the Ancient of Days. Jesus, the Only Begotten of the Father. Jesus, the Lord of Glory. Jesus, the Root of David. Jesus, the Seed of Abraham. Jesus, the Lily of the Valley. Jesus, the Bright and Morning Star. Jesus, the Stone that the Builders rejected. Jesus, the Water Walker. Jesus, the Lame Healer. Jesus, the Blind eye opener. Jesus was. Jesus was. It's going to get foolish in a minute. Jesus was arrested, spit on, beaten in the face. They plucked his beard. Then they took him to the whipping post. They sewed together a cat-o-nine tail whip. 
nine leather strips attached to a wooden rod, each leather strip sewn with bone, metal, and glass, ensuring to lacerate and tear apart the flesh of the victim who received the lashes. They tied Jesus' hands above his head, fastened him to the whipping post, and 39 times started beating him until holes started opening up in his body and blood started gushing out. They beat Jesus until Josephus, the historian, said that his internal organs were peeking out through his body. I said they beat Jesus until a lesser man would have died on the spot. They beat Jesus until he hardly had enough blood and strength in his body to stand up on his own two feet. They beat Jesus. And after the beating, I said after the beating, I said after the beating, they took him to the base of a hill and they took a heavy cross and laid it over his beaten back and his raw shoulders. And they said, we want you to carry your own cross all the way up this hill. I'm talking to you about a hill you need to know about, a hill you need to understand, a hill you need to have faith in, a hill you need to remember. It's a real hill. It's still there in Israel. It's a real location. It's still sitting in the same spot. They beat Jesus, then put a cross on it. And they said, we want you to carry this thing all the way up the hill. And so with blood pouring out of every spot of his body, he took on that cross and started walking up God's holy hill with blood pouring out every step of the way. Then they threw him down on top of that cross, stretched his hands out and nailed him to it. They nailed his feet and they lifted him up. They twisted a crown of thorns on his head, stuck a spear in his side, and we see the God of all grace bleeding out from five wounds, head, hands, feet, back, side, bleeding out all over the hill. Blood soaking into the hill. And the Bible said when God the Father, God the Creator, God the judge looked down and saw what was happening on the hill that he made a decision in that moment that Paul would later write in Romans chapter 10. He said, because of the blood that was shed on this hill, Paul said in Romans 10, because of the blood that was shed on this, oh, I can't stop preaching. He said, because of the blood that was shed on this hill, whosoever, I don't care what they've done. I don't care where they've been. I don't care what they're addicted to. I don't care who they slept with. I don't care about the abortion they had. I don't care what's in their veins right now. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If they have faith in what I did on the hill, 
if they have confidence in what I did on the hill, then they can call on me and I will answer and show you great and mighty things that you know not of. You can call on me in your day of trouble. You can call on me when the court case is against you. You can call on me when they say they found cancer in your body. You can call on me. As long as when you call, you got faith in what happened on the hill. As long as when you call, you praise me for what happened on the hill. As long as when you call, you got faith in what happened. Somebody shout right where you are. There's blood on the hill. There's blood on the hill. There's blood on the hill. Powerful blood, saving blood, forgiving blood, a blood that's a defense, a blood that's a shelter, a blood that's a strong tower. There's blood on the hill. And he said, said, my son, the boy I held in my arms is trying to kill me and take my kingdom. My military is looking for me to try to collect a award, an award for cutting off my head. My wife don't want to see me. I'm out here all by myself and I'm stripped of everything by my own doing. But every time I look up at that hill and I think about what took place, David said, I am filled with the confidence that even in the state that I'm in, God will hear me out of his holy hill. If David had that much real practical, real-life confidence in the blood of sheep, goats, and bulls. Then why are you walking around the house wringing your hands like you ain't got no hope? Why are you walking around believing the voices of condemnation saying God's mad at you, God's going to get you, you're in this mess because it's the judgment of God? If the blood David was working with to get that much confidence was, was that powerful, how much more then is the precious blood of Jesus Christ the righteous available to those who have confidence not in the church no this, no in real world situations looking at your problems when they come all the way down it's boiled all the way down there's no solution stepping back and looking at it all in a practical sense and saying yeah but I got confidence in the blood 
Oh, you ought to give him praise right there. I feel somebody coming out of a dark place. I feel somebody coming out of that depression. I feel somebody coming out of their anxiety. I feel somebody coming out of the fear. I feel somebody coming out of the shame. Hey! The hills have ears. The hills have know how to tell you this next part because oh pray for me pastor John we like to segment and divide and compartmentalize the activity of God so we like to put salvation in one room we like to put deliverance in another room you know some churches, in order to have a deliverance service, they have to bring in a guest deliverance preacher because they say deliverance is not my area, as if it was an area in and by itself. They have segmented and compartmentalized the movement and the activity of God. But not only will the blood save you, The blood is also a weapon of warfare that will deliver you. Oh, Jesus. So after David considers the hill, he says in verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone." The cheekbone is what gives the enemy the power to bite. God spoke to me and told me to tell you he's removing the bite from your problem. I don't know who that's for. I don't know who it's for. He spoke to me and told me you'll see it in the coming days. He's removing the bite from your problem. And then David said not only did he break the cheekbone, which is the power to bite, but just in case the enemy wanted to try to bite me with a broken cheekbone, God went in there and broke out all of his teeth. I'm telling you, you're dealing with a toothless enemy. You're dealing with a toothless devil. The enemy's been telling you, sending you threats that he's going to destroy you, but you're dealing with a toothless devil. I need 25 people that this word was for to stand up on your feet and help me with point number four because point number four is when God sends deliverance by his blood. You got to relish in the victory. You got to relish in the victory when he saves you, when he heals you, when he sends the breakthrough, when he sends the blessing, when he shuts the mouth of the enemy. You got to relish the victory. I need 10 seconds of praise to our most high God who knows how to break the teeth. Break the teeth. Break the teeth. The blood will save you, but the blood will also deliver you.
doctor's report just had in the service in this moment that doctor's report just had the teeth taken out of it go back to the doctor and have them check again i prophesy you will see a new report that says that the teeth have been taken out of that problem the teeth have been taken i just feel it in my spirit i can just sense it in my soul the teeth have been broken. He said, he said, you, you saved me from my sin, my iniquity that would keep you from hearing me. And, and then that same hill and the blood that flowed for that same, that same thing that saved me has now dealt with my enemy. It's delivered me. But then he ain't done. Salvation belongs to the Lord, verse 8, and your blessing is upon your people. The God that saved me by the blood, the God that delivered me and broke the teeth of the enemy by the blood is also the God that blesses me. All because I had confident, real-world, practical confidence while I was going through a problem, I'm going to rely on the blood. I'm going to rely on the blood. I'm going to let the blood handle this one. I'm going to let the blood answer this one. I'm going to let the blood answer this door. I'm going to let the blood answer this threat. The blood that saved me when I had confidence in it. The blood that delivered me from my enemies and broke their teeth is also the same blood that blesses me. He said, your blessing is upon your people. And it's all because of the blood. Now all that, that's the whole chapter of Psalm 3. All of that, just to beat a dead horse, all of that is working with lesser blood, Old Testament blood sacrifice. We have today the opportunity not just to look back at the hill of Mount Zion, but the hills from where our help comes from. David saw that coming hill. He couldn't describe it. He couldn't name it, but he saw it coming. And he said, help. Help's going to come from that hill. And this morning, not just spiritual, religious help, but the practical help your life needs. It's available when you have faith on what Jesus did at that hill. It's available. I will bless the Lord forever. And I will Trust him at all times. 
you know this little song, would you raise your hands and sing? He has delivered me from all fear. And he has set my feet upon. sing let me hear you is no segmenting there is no compartmentalizing the activity of God whatever you're dealing with today whether you're in need of a financial miracle a breakthrough provision whether you're in need of the salvation of your soul the forgiveness of your sin and right standing with God or whether you are up under attack and you need God to be a defense it was all made possible by what happened on a hill called Calvary. Yes. When the blood, the only begotten Son of God, poured out on the ground. And when you have confidence in that and have faith in that, and Paul said when you make an outward declaration of that confidence and faith, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So today, right where you're standing, I want to invite you to confess outwardly what you have faith 
in on the inside. That with the heart, Paul said, man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Let's make confession. All over the house, lift your hands up to heaven, Lord Jesus. I am a sinner. I have committed sin. And I was wrong. But today I stand in full confidence in the blood of Jesus Christ poured out on a hill called Calvary. And because of my faith in that blood, I receive your forgiveness. Because of my faith in that blood, I receive your deliverance. Because of my faith in that blood, I receive your blessing. I believe you died on the cross. I believe three days later, God the Father raised you from the dead. I accept you into my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I ask your Holy Spirit to come and fill me now. You said ask and it would be given. So I ask today with a sincere heart, God fill me with the Holy Spirit and lead me, counsel me, show me how to live. Show me how to walk with you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Give the Lord a great hand of praise. The blessing of the Lord be upon his people. The blessing of the Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit. The blessing of the Lord now be applied and on the people of God in Jesus name. God bless you. I love you. That's what I had for you today. I pray that it helped you. I pray that it helps you. Listen, we have a lot of things going on after service. I'm going to let you go. If you have an offering you'd like to give, or seed you would like to sow, if something was prophesied in the word and it hit you in your spirit, you said, I know that's for me. If you have something you want to attach your faith to by way of sowing or giving, you can come down and bring it here now. I pray the Lord your God bless you and keep you, lift his countenance upon you, give you peace, that you go from this place in confidence that the hills have ears.